Liz Appleton, a nurse in a primary care practice, takes a phone call from a community pharmacist. The pharmacist is concerned about a patient in the practice who appeared sedated when picking up a prescription yesterday. When Liz reviews the patient's records, she notes prescriptions for both high-dose opioids and benzodiazepines. There is little documentation of why the patient is on these medications. Welcome to the Scope of Pain podcast series. I'm Ilana Hardesty, your moderator. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Daniel Alford, a primary care physician and an addiction medicine specialist at Boston Medical Center and on the faculty at Boston University, and with Katherine Abrams, a clinical research nurse at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta. They'll discuss the roles nurses in primary care practices can play in the care of patients prescribed opioids for the treatment of pain. If at any point you want more information on safer opioid prescribing and or on receiving credit for this episode, please visit our website at www.scopeofpain.org. Again, find it all at www.scopeofpain.org. Let's begin discussion of this case with Dr. Alford. Dr. Alford, can you describe what might be going on with the individuals responsible for the care of our patient? What has Nurse Liz Appleton learned, and how should she address it? Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind to me is the importance of developing a practice-wide policies and procedures so that everyone's using the exact same procedures around safer opioid prescribing. One, to maximize benefits, and two, to minimize harm. And when I say practice-wide, I'm not just talking about primary care. I'm talking about any longitudinal care of patients with chronic pain who may be prescribed long-term opioids. It could be rheumatologists or oncologists or orthopedists for that matter, um, although we do oftentimes refer to it as primary care. And these procedures really need to include clearly documenting the rationale for someone to be on opioids or in this case, high-dose opioids, and other sedatives like benzodiazepines. The best practices should also include, you know, what's the standard for monitoring for benefits and harms, including urine drug testing. I've heard folks say, well, that seems like a lot of work to me. And, and I'll say that in clinical practice, especially in my primary care practice, we do a lot of stuff that's a lot of work, and we just figure out how to get it done. For instance, you know, starting a patient with diabetes on insulin is a lot of work, and I really rely on others in my practice to help me navigate that, educate the patient, and make sure that they're using insulin safely. So I think that also applies with opioid prescribing. You know, it is a lot of work if you're going to do it well, and we really need to involve the entire team. So I want to turn it over to Catherine and ask you, you know, how do you see the nurse's role in safer opioid prescribing practices? But, but before we do that, um, I know that my colleagues in the medical profession have really received very little or inadequate training in pain management and treating substance use disorders. And I'm wondering if that's also true of nursing education. Can you shed some light on that? Yes, Dan. Um, in most nursing schools, courses are only offered in substance use disorder and pain management as electives. Therefore, not all nurses get this in-depth knowledge of the subjects during their education. And after graduation, a nurse needs to pass a national exam, which does include some basic pain management and substance use disorder questions, and then become registered in the state where they intend to practice. Nurses can also get 
um, more education through continuing education. And continuing education requirements vary by state when they renew their license. Approximately 12 states do not require any continuing education with nursing license renewals. Some of the states have certain number of mandatory CE hours along with a few that require mandatory topics. But unfortunately, only a few states have requirements in pain management and substance use disorder. Some outpatient practices employ licensed practical nurses or LPNs, and their scope of practice varies from state to state. LPNs either work under the supervision of RNs or alongside medical assistants. LPNs complete one year of training and must pass a national exam as well. Going back to the education for a nurse, nurses are required to take pharmacology, which focuses on the safe administration of medication, and that includes opioids and other substances with the potential for misuse. Nursing schools have made improvements in safer opioid prescribing education by offering the electives for pain management, but many nurses who are interested in learning more have to expand their education on their own. Those nurses that want to become experts in pain management and or addiction can get certification and credentials by completing the required hours and take an exam and they can become a pain management nurse or an addiction registered nurse or even both. Well, Catherine, it's great to hear that there are opportunities for nurses to become specialized in pain and or addiction treatment. But I know that some of my primary care physician colleagues have told me they'd rather not work with this patient population, um, never mind becoming specialists. I can imagine you see this among your nursing colleagues, and I wonder if you could shed some light on it and how you would address that. Yes, there's reluctant to care for these patients, which also occurs with nurses. And some of the reasons we previously mentioned, which is the lack of training and therefore lack of knowledge and skill in caring for the patients. Um, there's also the factor that patients dealing with chronic pain have high rates of co-occurring mental illness, which include anxiety, depression, and personality disorders, and that can trigger a nurse or anybody. And this can cause them not to want to engage in the therapeutic relationship with the patient. For these reasons, it's important for nurses as well as other healthcare workers to develop a practice of self-care maintain their own resiliency, and stay grounded while working with anyone, but especially with complex patients. Providing education on the disease process and the rationale and implementation of safer opioid prescribing procedures can help with the reluctant team member. The proper procedure for a pill count is just as important as learning a sterile dressing change. Performing a pill count incorrectly with judgment or shame can potentially damage that nurse-patient relationship dysregulate the patient, increasing their chance of risky behavior, which can lead to a possible overdose or even suicide. It's also important for healthcare workers to be aware of their own biases, and biases especially around disease of addiction. I've experienced nurses who've had family members with addiction and think that all opioids equal addiction. Let's think a little bit more about roles. Let me ask you both about how you see your roles uh, within that healthcare team. If we think about patient-centered care, how do the various team members revolve around that patient? Dr. Alford? Shouldn't really be that complex or that different from what we do in regular care. What do I mean? So. We should be thinking along the terms of a risk-benefit framework, similar to what we do for other complex medical conditions. For instance, 
Um, you know, when we're treating somebody's hypertension or diabetes, we start a treatment, we look for an outcome, have we achieved the goal? And then we also look for adverse effects. Is there something that's going to prevent me from continuing using this treatment if it's benefiting the patient um, based on adverse effects? So it's this kind of risk-benefit framework that we're constantly balancing. And it's the same thing with treating pain, and especially when we start using medications like opioids. For instance, is there improvement in the patient's pain reports? Has their function improved? Is their quality of life improved on the medication? And is there an absence of risk or harm, like is there opioid misuse, evidence of misuse, loss of control, compulsive use, continued use despite harm? Um, is there a worsening of function while someone is on opioids? And that certainly can happen. And I'll just say that we spend a lot of time talking about this risk-benefit framework in the Scope of Pain program at uh, scopeofpain.org. So I would encourage people to consider going there. But I really want to turn it over to Catherine and, and ask you about nursing roles. Um, what are the potential nursing roles in safer opioid prescribing practice? Yeah, um, I first want to start off saying that I agree with you, Dan, with what you said earlier, that each practice should develop and implement practice policies and procedures. And to do this well, I believe nurses should be at the table from the beginning when these practice guidelines are developed. This also helps with nurse buy-in to help with the providers as they need to implement these guidelines. The patients benefit when the primary care clinicians and nurses work together and understand each other's role for safer opioid prescribing. Having documented standard operating procedures in place for all team members can help create the same language and the standard of care for everyone in the practice. That's including the front desk staff. You asked about the potential roles of nurses in safer opioid prescribing, and I'm just going to list a few examples of what a nurse can do. A nurse can complete a pain assessment, which includes assessing for treatment benefits, assess for risk of substance use by using validated screening tools, provide patient education, including safe opioid storage and disposal, obtain urine drug screens and performing pill counts, tracking opioid refills to ensure no early refills. Nurses can review the prescription drug monitoring program, PDMP, as allowed by the state educating patients and their families on signs and symptoms of overdose and use of naloxone. The nurse can also assist the primary care clinician in arranging for treatment of opioid use disorders if required. With all of these being said, one of the complaints that I hear from nurses and sometimes myself is I don't have enough time to do all of this. Not having enough time can lead to burnout, stress, and as we know, um, Recently, there's been some that are really leaving the profession. For me, I get the most satisfaction out of my nursing career by developing effective relationships with patients, and especially those who have complex conditions, like those suffering with chronic pain or the disease of addiction. I've learned that building trust is what allows for that space to have honest conversations, which is important for safety and improves health outcomes. And the more we learn and implement trauma-informed care and lead with kindness and compassion and empathy, and not with what is wrong with this patient, but what's happened to this patient, as well as what are the patient's strengths, we can establish trust. And when I displays these traits, most of the time, they put a patient at ease, again, allowing for safe space for them to share their fears, concerns, and wishes for themselves in their care. Thank you both for those helpful insights. Let's return now to our case. 
Upon further chart review, not only was there a lack of documentation for the rationale of the combined high-dose opioid and benzodiazepine prescriptions, there were other gaps in care, including the patient has not been seen in over six months, there was no monitoring for adherence and safety, including no urine drug tests or mention of reviewing the PDMP. This was especially concerning now that there is evidence, as reported by the community pharmacist, that the patient may be oversedated on this regimen. Catherine, how would you counsel Liz Appleton to navigate the communications she needs to have with the prescribing physician and any others in her practice? Navigating the communication is difficult, and a great guideline for navigating this is found in the American Nursing Association Code of Ethics. Provision 3 states that the nurse promotes, advocates for, and protects the rights, health, and safety of all patients. 3.5 of that provision has a statement with the protection of patients' health and safety by acting on questionable practices. This can be applied to this case. So to summarize, the first step is to discuss the concerns with the provider. If the nurse still has concerns, then they might need to take it to their manager. And if it's still not resolved, then the manager and the nurse might need to discuss this with the head of practice. This is where the nurse's role of patient advocate really plays out. Nurses have a duty to advocate for patient safety and for guideline-based practices. So let me just add that I, I think this situation highlights the importance of having those written, agreed-upon policies and procedures that everybody in the practice has helped to develop and has agreed upon. There'll certainly need to be some negotiating and compromise when developing these because there aren't necessarily evidence-based practices that everybody should abide by. But I think, you know, you have to decide as a practice how often should these patients be seen, um, including virtual visits, and how often should we be doing urine drug testing. And it's going to vary depending on the patient and their risk level. Um, and how and where should documentation of benefits and harms be in the chart? And I know personally, when I'm cross-covering my colleagues, it can become quite challenging to not be able to identify why is this person who I'm being asked to refill the prescription, why are they on this medication and are they actually being helped and is there any evidence of harm? And so I think it really is important to agree upon the procedures, including where all this should be documented, especially with patients on higher risk regimens like the patient we'll be talking about, which is someone who's on higher dose opioids and combined sedatives like benzodiazepines. Now, moving back to Catherine, I can imagine that talking to this primary care clinician um, is going to be very anxiety provoking and quite challenging. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how that all occurs. Yes, I, I agree. I think for a nurse to have a hard conversation around um, prescribing with a provider is very uncomfortable. But I think it's a nursing responsibility to ensure patient safety Every practice and institution has its own culture. I remember when I graduated nursing school in the 80s, I was instructed to not only make sure all the charts were available, but I was instructed to give up my seat when the doctor came on the unit. A few years later, I started a new job working in an academic institution, and the culture was very different, as the nurse-doctor relationship was a team approach. I know currently there are some practices that have a doctor-nurse relationship that is hierarchical, but when a practice implements patient-centered care with the respect of the interprofessional team approach, then the patient benefits with better health care outcomes. 
I want to state again in the American Nursing Association Code of Ethics that a nurse has a duty to advocate for patient rights as well as health and safety, which means that a nurse has to ask tough questions, needs to seek out guidance and have those hard conversations. So going back to the case, I would suggest to Liz to share with no judgment her concerns with the provider that the patient has not been seen in over six months and might have had a life event that caused stress in their life, which can increase their pain. I would state that there is no documentation of the ongoing monitoring for benefits and harms, which also puts the primary care clinician at risk if there's a bad patient outcome. Okay, so Liz follows your recommendations, Catherine, and the clinician states that she does not want to upset the patient as she's seen the patient for many years and fears that the patient will be offended if they're asked to leave urine drug tests and bring in pills for pill counts. How would you respond to that, Catherine? First, as a nurse, I'd be grateful that the practice had already set up policies and procedures for monitoring opioids. And hopefully the provider and Liz can work together as a team to develop a care plan as to how to implement these guidelines into patient's care. It may help to explain that these are new practices based on the more current understanding of the potential risk of these medications and that we need to apply them universally to all patients in order to keep everyone safe from these potential lethal medications. A good first step is starting with the pain assessment and a nurse like Liz can do this. It not only establishes the relationship with that patient, but it starts the agreed documentation of the patient's pain, any benefits and function, and any aberrant behavior. It's also a great time to discuss with that patient naloxone at home and education if needed. The patient assessment visit between Liz and the patient can help bridge that gap till the next patient appointment with the provider, who then can continue to incorporate the guidelines into patient's care. Here, strong communication and interpersonal skills are needed by the nurse to navigate not only hard conversations with the patient, but hard conversations with the provider and do it without judgment. Thank you. Let's talk now a bit about some of the nuances that might present themselves. For example, what happens to the healthcare team when there's a patient who triangulates, that is, who tells the nurse one thing and the physician something completely different, or reveals something to the nurse but asks the nurse to, quote, keep it a secret from the physician? Uh, Dr. Alford? So unfortunately, this type of splitting can occur and does occur. Um, and it's really important to emphasize upfront with the patient or at any time during conversations with a patient that you work together. The entire team works together and we share information in order to improve the patient benefits and care and, and to keep them safe. And it's also important that we trust each other and respect each other on the team. Um, and with the expectation that we're all practicing um, using the same agreed upon standards of care that are outlined in the procedures. But I'm gonna turn it over to Catherine um, and hear your comments. When the patient is enrolled in the practice, I agree with you. You've got to establish those communication expectations for the entire team, setting up that the nurse and provider and the patient are working together to ensure safety and also develop a plan of care for pain management. Patients may feel more comfortable with a nurse as some patients see the provider's authority figure, and the patient may ask the nurse not to share something with the provider. 
Just like setting up policies and procedures up front in a practice, the nurse and provider need to share the expectations for communication with that patient. If the patient continues to ask the nurse not to share the information, I would get curious and ask why and what are the concerns to start an honest conversation with the provider sharing the information and their concerns. So, you know, thinking back, um, working with, you know, nurse, uh, my nurses in my practice, I've, on occasion, I've heard um, that patients don't understand or respect the role of the nurse, right? Because they're not writing the prescription. And so they may say to the nurse, you know, why are you asking me these questions? Why, you know, you're not the one who, who's prescribing this medication. So I'm curious um, what your experience has been, Catherine, and, and how you would respond to that. Yeah, I, I have had that experience. And there are times when a patient really just wants to work just with that provider. And I think that's where the provider needs to have that communication with the patient that we're a team and that we both have our roles to provide care for the patient, um, providing safety for the patient. And by doing this, it helps the provider because they have a limited amount of time in their practice. It also helps the nurse by really working with that patient and establishing the relationship. And again, it goes back to when a nurse really has a good relationship with that patient, it improves that safety, it improves the patient health outcomes as well. I mean, it's, inter it's interesting because I've never had a patient push back when I send them to the nurse to get education around their diabetes management or how to use an inhaler. Um, but I have with you know pain and opioid prescribing. And there's obviously something very different in the patient's mind um, about how that plays out, but I just find it interesting when I think about it. Yeah, I, I think again, it goes back to that fear of um, being judged maybe from the patient, maybe they've had past experiences. So again, it's that nurse's responsibility to come at the conversation without judgment and without shame. And then that builds that sense of trust. It sounds like all of this does get back to those practice policies that we've been talking about all along. But what if a team member thinks that the patient should be discharged for lying to the physician or the nurse? Dr. Alford? Now, I've definitely heard this before as well, um, you know, that the patient said they weren't using any drugs and then their urine drug test showed cocaine use. And, you know, how can I continue caring for them if I can't trust that they're giving me accurate information and there's this distrust? And for some reason, we take that personally, where when patients are not 100% truthful about their exercise or diet or medication adherence, we don't take that personally and we never think about discharging them from the practice. And so I usually tell my colleagues, listen, don't take it personally. Uh, patients who have substance use disorders um, will lie to themselves, they'll lie to their family members, and they may lie to us. And just don't take it personally, just look at it as a new problem that needs to go on the problem list, that needs to be addressed. Um, you know, it may certainly impact whether or not you want to continue or you feel that it's safe to continue prescribing an opioid, but it doesn't mean you're going to discharge the patient from your practice. You may end up discharging the opioid from the regimen because you're, of your concerns about risk, but, but there shouldn't be any patient abandonment here. So, uh, you know, I encourage folks not to take that personally and to keep their clinician hat on and, and take care of the patient. Catherine? Yeah, I agree with you, Dan. Um... It's not only the providers who take it personally, but it's also nurses and 
other staff members that are in a primary care clinic. People who are on pain management and use other substances have high rates of co-occurring mental illness and or post-traumatic stress disorders. Lying is just one of the many maladaptive coping mechanisms. This is another example of why the nurse's role for advocacy and the need for starting a conversation with the provider regarding the concerns that discharging the patient from the practice might cause harm by increasing the risk of um, risky behaviors that might lead to overdose and possible suicide. Hopefully the nurse and provider can come to an agreement to discuss with the patient the concerns and explore if there's a readiness for change, possible options for rehab, starting on buprenorphine, or the need to taper the opioids and continue to follow the patient for care using other alternatives for their pain management. I remember a case where I interacted with a patient and I had developed a relationship with them and they gave me a urine for a urine drug screen, which was cold and clear. And obviously it was a falsified urine. I stated calmly and without judgment that the urine was not as expected. And I asked him to give me another one. And after he produced that urine that was expected, he left the clinic and I got a call from him while he was still in his car in the clinic parking lot. And he called and he said he was sorry. He had lied and he had used cocaine recently and he was afraid of what would happen with a positive urine. I thanked him for the call and I said I would share this information with the provider as we both wanted to keep him safe. I believe he felt like he could call me and be honest because we had really developed a level of trust between us. I didn't take it personally that he was trying to trick me because I knew by the documentation in his chart that he had had a history of trauma and he was using survival skills and it wasn't personal. The provider and I discussed the next step for this patient with conversations centered on how to keep him safe and then included conversation on how to address his cocaine use along with managing his pain. Thank you, Catherine. That's very, very helpful and, and a really uh, moving story. Uh, Dr. Alford, do you have any last words for us today? I would just summarize in saying that, you know, safer opioid prescribing is a lot of work, but we do that in practice in general. And how do we do it? We collaborate with team members um, in our practice. And the best way to collaborate with team members and making sure everyone's on the same page is to create and use agreed upon policies and procedures, especially in this area of safer opioid prescribing for pain. Um, but you know, it really is an important opportunity to, to work together with the patient in the center, obviously, to keep them safe from these potentially lethal medications that may be, you know, may be helping them as well. So I think it's, it's, um, it just emphasizes the importance of team-based care. Thank you again, Dr. Daniel Alford and Katherine Abrams for joining us today. Scope of Pain was developed by the Boston University Chobanian and Avedisian School of Medicine in collaboration with our national partner, the Federation of State Medical Boards. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from the Opioid Analgesic Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, or REMS, program companies. Remember, to follow up on any of the material you heard today, please visit our website at www.scopeofpain.org. While there, please take your post-test to receive continuing education credit for this episode. I'm your host, Ilana Hardesty. Thank you for listening.